Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is October the 29th, 2019. This is episode 2540 of the Survival Podcast. Seems like just yesterday we were celebrating episode 2500. Here we're really close to 2550, getting uh, halfway through the next 100, huh? Time flies, because tick-tock, tick-tock, the clock ticks for us all. What are you doing with your dash, right? I mean, that's something I've been saying for a long time. I don't know if I've been talking about um, making the most of your dash since day one of the Survival Podcast, but I've definitely talked about it since, I would say, the very beginning. I'm pretty sure I started talking about making the most of your dash when I was still doing this podcast from my car. That would have been at the latest 2009 And today we're going to talk about making the most of your dash and giving people a foundation, young people, children a foundation, so they can make the most of their dash as they become adults. Today's show is called 10 Life Skills We Should Teach Every Child. And, uh, you know, you, you, when you make a title of a podcast, you got to think about the fact it's got to fit in the podcast feed. It's going to be in search engines. It's going to be in social media. And you want it to, uh, to be short enough and concise enough that people understand it. It, it really would read if I wanted this to, to convey the full idea in the title alone. Ten life schools we should be teaching every child and many adults who never learn them. And a lot of these skills we're going to talk about today, you might be like, yeah, I know that. But when I start coming at the angle that I'm coming at today, you might be like, you know, I do know that, but I might really need more work at it. And, and that's my hope today. I want to come at things today a little bit differently. I've done shows on skills to teach kids and stuff like that before. I even did, like, one of my most popular shows ever, was syndicated on quite a few blogs, was uh, developing resilient children in a world full of wusses. And so I've done that angle, and I've done kind of just, you know, the kids should learn how to grow their own food. Kids should learn how to, like, you know, take care of themselves and stuff like that before. But today I want to come at it more from the process. So I have 10 skills here. I could easily have 50. Like, a well-rounded person is someone that can do a hell of a lot more than 10 things. But... I actually had to struggle a little bit today when I started thinking about the angle I want to come at this with. Because here's what I mean. I want to come at this from a process, logical and methodical, how you tackle developing this skill set and how you develop the skill set so that it is far more broad than having the ability to build something. So let's say that you wanted to build a spice rack, like a classic. When I was a kid and we used to have wood shop in school, you'd build a spice rack. So you would have either templates or some sort of design, a bill of materials, whatever, and then you would learn. And I mean, I would say this is a terrible way to learn, but it's a limited way to learn. So you might learn things like, well, how to use a drill press to make a hole in the door, and then you might learn to use something like a, 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 a jigsaw or a coping saw in part of this, and you'd probably eventually break something, and you'd learn how to do gluing and Uh, maybe you'd learn how to use a router and how to sand wood and how to stain wood, etc. But basically, you were doing paint by numbers. The shop teacher had to have you know 30 kids in an individual class all build a spice rack, and they all had to get it done by a certain amount of time. So it wasn't like, hey, go figure out how to build a spice rack. So th those are fine for learning the basic technical skills. But what if you needed to design the spice rack? What if you didn't know what you wanted to build was a spice rack? What if you just wanted to figure out a wood shop project 
for kids to do. And you had to figure out not only what to build, but how to build it, what to build it out of, what materials and tools are necessary, what the total cost is going to be, not per unit, but for the whole damn thing, how to minimize what you see what I'm saying. It's a totally different thing to be able to estimate, to be able to design, to be able to develop a bill of materials and understand all the things that go into building a product out of wood and thereby understand the process and the theory that underlies it and thereby now having the ability to go, well, what do you need me to build you? Well, what do I need built? And whether you're going to build it or not, at least you can design it. Maybe you don't have time to build it, but you can design it. You do a bill of materials for it, and then when you farm it out to somebody, you know what it should cost. Do you see the difference? That's the angle we're coming at from today. Now, why did that make this actually a little harder to come up with a list? Because I started realizing how many things that we think of as individual skills have so much overlap that if you actually understand the process of one, you understand the process of both. That's the power of what we're going to talk about today, and we're going to get to it in just a moment. Before we do, let's start out with a quote of the day that I think fits today's show really, really good. This is by one of my favorite people. He's an entrepreneur, a very wealthy man. He's not president. <laughs> Maybe he should be. He's made his money by poking fun at corporate America. You know who I'm talking about yet? He's going bald, a bit older now. I hear tell that some of his work is banned at HP because it is too close to their corporate culture. Got it yet? Creator of Dilbert, Scott Adams. This is what he said about skills. Every skill you acquire doubles your odds of success. I do think it is that simple. And I do think this is why we should be teaching as much diversity of skill set to our kids as possible. If you teach a young person to have 50 or 60 skill sets that the average person doesn't have by the time they're 18, their odds of failure are pretty low unless they don't want to succeed. There will be something they can figure out that they can do for someone to have success somewhere. And that will be a start. And once you have a start, you have a toehold. And once you have a toehold, you can build a ledge for yourself. Once you can build a ledge, you can figure out how to get a window open. Once you can get inside the window, you can take over the office. That's what we're coming at with this today. Before we dig into those 10 skills, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is Ridge Wallet. I love the Ridge Wallet. I didn't think I would like the Ridge Wallet. I was approached about two years ago now by a guy that reps Ridge Wallet and a few other lines. And of the lines he repped, he wanted to be a sponsor of the show. I was like, I this Ridge Wallet thing might fit my audience. I'm not sure. Let me send you a couple. So he did. And I looked at my big billfold and all my stuff that was in there that I thought I needed. And I, actually, my billfold is sitting on my desk. It's empty. It's got old copies of my driver's license in it now. And it's been sitting here for a long time since I cleaned off the shelf that I put it on two years ago. And somehow the stuff that fits in my Ridge wallet is all I need to carry around in my wallet. And now no one can steal my identity off my RFID tags on my identity or my credit cards or anything like that. And I never forget my wallet anymore because it's clipped to the inside of my pants like a, uh, like a, like a liner lock knife. I never sit on it. I never take it out of my pocket because it's uncomfortable in my truck and then leave it there and have all my groceries and have to go out to the truck to get it while people look at me and angry. I mean, it's just so much better. It's not a little bit better. It's 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 a, a tremendous amount better. If you check out Ridge Wallet and all their cool stuff, you'll see why. And remember, if you're a member of my member support brigade, you get 10% off everything that they sell. Next up today is Backwoods Home Magazine. Of all the things I've I've you know advocated for over the years, and all of the companies that have been sponsors for me, the one that I was like, sure, I'll do that without any thought whatsoever was Backwoods Home. 
And the reason that it was that way with Backwoods Home is I first discovered Backwoods Home magazine all the way back when I first got out of the Army back in 1993. That's how old I am. I wasn't born that long ago. I got out of the Army that long ago. And I moved to Louisville, Texas, and there was a mall about a three-quarter mile walk from my apartment. And trying to stay active, I would walk down to the mall because I was baroque. I talked yesterday about how baroque I was. I was baroque, beyond broke. That's baroque. So I didn't have any money, so I didn't have a lot of things I could do. So I'd walk down the mall and window shop and things like that and go to the Barnes & Noble down there, back when people still went to bookstores. And I found this magazine on the, the shelf. And I would go down there and buy a coffee, and that way I could sit there and read all day like it was a library and not feel like a bum. And after I got a job and got on my feet, I decided to subscribe to Backwoods Home after reading it in, in, in the Barnes & Noble for those months because it was so useful to me. And I've been a subscriber ever since. Now, when you've been a subscriber to something... Since 1990-anything, and somebody comes along in 2000-something and says, will you back this? You're like, yeah, I'll do that. That's Backwoods Home. Become a subscriber, and you will see why. Check them out today, backwoodshome.com. That brings us to getting into this. So let's start talking about what we're going to be covering today with these 10 skills and the way I want to approach this. What I want to kind of get off the, 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 the on the starting foot here with you is that Understanding what to do is not the same as understanding why it's done a certain way. That if I wanted to try to encapsulate it into a simplistic thing, that that's what it would be. That you, just because you know how to do something doesn't mean you understand why it's done that way. And sometimes that's just the way that it's going to be. Like when I had employees and I needed work done now, I didn't have time to explain to them why I had a procedure in place. Like after hours on your lunch break, whatever. But once I get this shit done. I need it done. So there is a place for that. But you know what that's for? That's for the random, everyday employee that can be replaced easily. See, if I develop all the systems and procedures in a job, if I develop everything so that anybody can do it, and I hire you, I might say you have to have certain requirements, but those requirements really are that you can breathe and you can function and communicate, and you can do what the hell you're told. Well, even though there's a lot of people that can't, there's enough people that can that I can always replace you. When you're the person that actually can develop the systems, you're valuable to me. You're a lot more valuable to me. Now, you might be kind of a pain early on when all I really need you to do is take care of this thing. So you have to learn the skill set also there of knowing how to fit in and when to fit in. But if you'll take that initiative and use it when, you, when everything I need done is done and you do something else for me, I start to really, really value you. I started to say, if I don't have a place to promote this person into, maybe I can create a position for them because I don't want them to go away. So when it comes to teaching these skills, it's not just how to do them. It's why they're done that way. And if you can get that into the brains of your children, starting as young as like you know seven, eight years old, but really continuing to... So start out with the mechanical how and broaden into the why and the what as they get older and mature and want to know more and their curiosity takes over. And if you can get this into them by the time that they're 18, when they look around at their peers, they're going to think, gee, this is an unfair fight that I'm in. I'm glad I'm the one with all the advantages. And I'm not kidding. So let me tell you how this started out, because it fits with our first skill today. I was on Facebook, and somebody posted an article. And it was how students as young as in kindergarten in a particular school in Alaska are learning to cut up a moose. Now, it didn't look like they're learning to skin a moose, 
or hunt a moose or gut a moose, but basically they have the cuts of a moose, which are about the size of the cuts of a cow. So maybe you're looking at quarters and, and whole cuts, like maybe a rib cut or something like that. And they're learning to actually part this out. This is the piece that becomes a steak. This is the piece that becomes a roast. This is the stuff that we trim off. This is excess trim that gets to you know, go, go make sausage. This is what makes hamburger, etc. This is stew meat, that type of thing, basic meat cutting. So I made a post, and what I said in that post was, you know, This is the kind of skills we should be teaching kids if we're going to have schools in schools. And it's so much more valuable than higher math and trigonometry and calculus and stuff like that because less than 10% of people in the real world will use higher math. Less than 10%. And of those, only maybe half of them will actually use it significantly. Maybe 5% will like day-to-day -day use trigonometry or calculus or advanced calc in their jobs. The other 5% will use a little bit here and there that they could be taught very easily as part of their entry-level job training because there's going to be a few things that they do it with. That's it. But if So it's not going to really drastically change anybody's tax bracket or anything like that because the person that wants to be an engineer is going to learn those, those, those things anyway. But if you did teach everybody how to cut meat, anybody that then turned around and used that skill could add about $2,000 a year to their budget by buying whole birds, whole meat cuts, things like that, and parting out their own meat. By the way, if you did that for 40 years and invested the $166 a month that works out to being very conservative, uh, that's about $80,000 and invested at a shitty interest rate um, will add about $200,000, it's like $187,000 in change to your retirement, which for the average person's 20 years of retirement would put almost $10,000 a year of additional income into the retirement. By teaching this single skill set. And then I also said, and some of you are going to tell me, but I do use higher math in my job. And I said, good, the F for you. And I actually spelled out the full F word. And some of you are going to say, well, I don't use it, but I like it. And I said, well, good, the F for you. I like to pick up rattlesnakes and, and, and handle them. But I don't think everybody should learn how to handle rattlesnakes. That's something that people that actually have the, the concepts and theory and desire and willing to take the risk of handling a rattlesnake should do. Like me, not you. You know, maybe you are like me. Well, that's different. You see what I'm saying? The person that's going to learn that skill set is going to go out of their way to learn that skill set because they care about it. And, of course, somebody came along and told me what a great difference the calculus made in her life. And I said, and I was absolutely spot on, by the way, when you hear this today, you are who I put good the F for you in there for. And it was exactly the person I knew that would say it because, well, you always do. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That... Higher level math is not necessary. We'd be much better off teaching one of my skills today, like accounting and bookkeeping and the theory and process behind them. Does that mean that there's no value in learning calculus or algebra? No. But it does mean if we're going to have to make an admission that when it comes to education for our children, that we don't have enough time and resources to teach them everything that possibly maybe could be useful, then we might need to start thinking a lot more about what needs to be termed an elective. Because the kid that wants to be an engineer, the kid that wants to be an astrophysicist, they're going to select those electives. Are they not? So this is why I'm for removing compulsory education, because learning's not compulsory anyway, as our quote said yesterday, neither is your survival. But you might, you might want to learn, and most people do. 
But if we were to go to a completely private-based education system and give people all the money back that's stolen from them, right now we could have very affordable education that would be tailored to the individual. But we're not going to do that. So you're going to have to learn one of my skills. It's not on the list today, but it's one that almost made it. Teaching. I have another skill set that if you know how to do it, you'll learn how to teach anyway. So that's what I'm talking about with redundancy. So let's talk about meat cutting. Yes, your child should learn how to cut meat. Now, I think it would be good if your child learned how to, let's say, process an animal from the point that that animal is made dead all the way through through to the point where that animal is made to, you know, makes you go yum. But we can start out with just meat processing, which I think is actually a lot better for kids. Now, obviously there are skills that are involved here, like knife handling and doing so safely. So until the child has progressed to the point where they can effectively and safely handle a knife, we're probably not going to do meat cutting. But I think the best thing to start out with basic meat cutting skills with is just simply a whole chicken, which most Americans eat. So it won't cost you any money to teach your kid how to take a chicken apart. Now, for many of you, the first thing you're going to have to do is learn how to take a chicken apart. And you may want to take three or four or five or six of them apart until you get really competent with it. So when you're teaching it, you teach it properly. The good news is YouTube will show you how to do it. The reason that we should start with a chicken is, number one, it's cheap. Number two, it's small. Number three, everybody eats it. Right? So what that means is when we're done cutting it up, the kids will eat it. Which is really important. You want them to get the whole thing. But the other thing is, since it's small and affordable, we can get their hands into it for no real money, but it will teach them everything they need to know about the theory of meat cutting. When we look at a chicken, we look at something like back leg quarter. So we have a thigh and we have a, a drumstick. The foot's already been removed for us. Somebody did that. They were nice to us. We need to get that leg and that thigh off, and we're going to take it off as a unit. So we're going to find a crease in the animal. We're going to kind of push on that where that ball joint is. We're going to learn a little bit about anatomy. We're going to figure out, hey, that's kind of the place this thing naturally kind of wants to come apart. And if we've ever eaten a chicken, we know that we have white meat and we have dark meat, and that's kind of the bifurcation point where the two separate from each other. So it'd probably be good to separate them because since they're two totally different cuts of meat, We're going to cook them differently. Now we can explain, hey, this is just like, you know the big pot roast that we cook for a really, really long time? Yeah, that's a muscle that does a lot of work, and it's tough. And if we just throw it on the grill like that beautiful ribeye steak and we cook it medium, it's going to be so tough we're not going to want to eat it. But if we overcook that ribeye, we've, we've lost the opportunity. Well, we have this breast meat that, that cooks at a lower temperature. And if we cook it too long, it's going to dry out. It's white meat. And we have this dark meat. That if we, we come to cook to a little longer and a little higher temperature, so it's not so tough and it's got more fat in it, so it's juicier, so it can handle a longer cook. So this is where we're going to take this apart. Now, that might not be the exact reason we take apart out of any animal cut, but we've just explained how we've worked that out. You see the difference between, oh, cut this off. So now we understand that. We open that up. We find the joint. And now we're going to have to get something. We're going to deal with bone. So you think we need, we need a saw or something because bone's hard. But no, look, Johnny, we cut the meat around this, and we find that joint, and we push it. Look at that. That joint, that socket pops right out. Take our knife, just go in there and go through those tendons and ligaments, and poof, off comes a leg quarter. You do the other one. Do the other side. By the way, it's easier, depending on your hand, it's easy to do one from this way and the other turn the bird the other way. 
So turn the bird around when you do it. If we're using the same hand, Johnny, Johnny takes the leg off. Okay, we've done that now. Now look, we have the wings. Look, if we turn the chicken over onto its stomach now, and we pull back on the wing, we have the same similar type of joint there. Now these are both white meats, the wing and the, and the breast, but the wing is small. If we cook the wing as long as the breast, the wing will dry out. That's why cooking whole chickens is really not that great a thing to do. So what do you think we do? Oh, we take that apart. Okay, look, here's, look at this, this right here, the way that goes back into the back there. That is that piece of the, the wing that everybody leaves behind when you get them from the store and done that way. If we cut around that, back in through, pop, boom, look, there's the wing off. Johnny, let's put the wing over here. You do the other wing. All right, then we're going to make a decision. Do we want to take the breast with the bone in, or do we want to take the breast cutlets off the bone? I'm not going to go through exactly how to take an entire chicken apart, but you get that. And we're going to end up with a breast or two breast halves or four breast pieces, bone in or bone out, a core, wings, and, and leg quarters, thighs and legs. Now, in this particular instance, do we want drumsticks and thighs or do we want to cook whole leg quarters? We're going to make a decision on that based on what we want. We're going to make a decision on that based on well how big the chicken is. A bigger chicken, you might be more inclined to take apart. But if we're going to take it apart, we're going to look at that leg and thigh, see how that joint works. Come in and the crease. We're going to find the joint. We're going to separate it. Now we've got all the pieces of the chicken in a core. Now we can talk about what we do with that chicken. So now, if that child were asked to take apart a rabbit, even though a rabbit is a totally different critter, you could figure out how to take a rabbit apart. Well, if you can figure out how to take a rabbit apart, a squirrel's just like a small rabbit, you know, anatomy-wise. So now we can take apart a squirrel. Well, a squirrel and a rabbit are just like a deer. So now we can figure out how to take apart a deer. So now by starting with a chicken and learning that basic concept of meat cutting, we can, we can progress and learn whatever we need to learn on our own to take apart any animal. And whatever we don't intuitively understand with a little bit of research we can get an answer that we need and just on chickens we can save 30 bucks a month if somebody eats a lot of chicken in their household i really don't think it's that hard to save about 150 dollars a month doing your own meat cutting meat cutting by the way is a valuable skill not as much as it used to be but it is that's just meat cutting And that's the process. So I'm not going to go as in-depth with every other skill, but that's the that's the level to come at this from. Let's go to the next one, carpentry. Kind of talked this with, with, talked about this with shop class. I'm not saying everybody needs to become a master cabinet maker. See, in doing these skills, you might find that your, your child or you, when you start learning about woodworking, have this natural talent for woodworking. By the way, I don't. If you put a lot of faith in my carpentry skills... I promise to let you down, okay? I can build stuff. I'm okay at it. Some of the stuff I've built, some of my friends have been like, wow, that, that, that came out better than I, than I expected. And I'm like, did you doubt the product or did you doubt my skill? And they're like, a little of both, right? You know who you are, David. Anyway, so um, I'm not a master carpenter, but if I want to build something, I can functionally build it. If I want to do something and I need parts of it to look really good, I can hire out that part. Here's an example. I suck at miter joints. I just suck at them. I could take the time to become really, really good at them. But when I did my floors myself, on my wood floors, the flooring part was easy. 
What actually made it look good was the baseboards, and those baseboards needed minor joints. So I put the floor down, which saved me a ton of money, and I hired a handyman to do the minor joints and the baseboard and the transition seams from one type of floor to the other because that made a lot of sense to me. Because I understood the theory, I went as far as I was comfortable with, and I left the part that, like, if I did it, it would be okay, but I would see that mismatched joint forever, and it would annoy me, where if he made a mismatched joint, I'd be like, dude, you need to fix that before I pay you. See, that's that's part of understanding a skill set, is to understand, well, once I understand it, how much of it do I want to do and when? When do I want to farm it out? Now you're thinking like an entrepreneur, whether it's in business or your own life, at a personal level. But when it comes to carpentry, with that, with, to me, if you actually have carpentry as a skill set, and I find this to be more important than the person that can finish a cabinet and make it look gorgeous. Because if that's all that person can do, all, they can be, all that can be done with them is they can be regulated to be an employee. The person that can actually go into a kitchen, measure the kitchen, determine the cabinets that go in there. And like the cabinet guy that did my kitchen where we had this corner and it was just kind of odd. And he's like, oh, you know what I can do? I can make a corner drawer. And we're like, what exactly do you mean? And the front of the drawer actually had a miter joint. And then when you opened it, it slid back into the corner. It was like, oh, that's that. He got the job, right? Like we had three people bid the cabinets, but when we saw he could do that, and I'm sure if I told the other cabinet maker, hey, the other guy said he can do this, he'd be like, oh, I can do that. And I'm sure he could have. The guy that could figure it out, the guy that can estimate the entire materials that are necessary and then get a cost for it and then say, if I wanted to sell this job instead of just do this job for myself and I wanted to make 40% on the job, here's how much I would need to sell the job for and here's how much other jobs are going for. So how can I get somebody to pay me more to do the same thing by convincing them that it's better? And we've had added the concept of sales and product estimation and cost estimation to carpentry, which to me, it doesn't have a lot of value until you add those things. Because even if you're not going to sell the job, you're going to sell the job. How do I mean? Well, guys, you're going to want to do something. And unless you decide to be one of those Metgal guys that go their own way and live singly for your whole life, you're going to have somebody in your household that's going to want you to do something else or not want you to spend the money on it. You're going to have to sell it. You're going to have to explain what you're getting out of it, how much it's going to cost you, and why it's a good deal. I'm not kidding. And you have to be good enough at it that it looks pretty enough that she's okay with it. And you have to know why you're say, having somebody else do the baseboards. That's just a piece of the carpentry, though. What kind of wood should you use and why? One of the things, you know, I learned in woodshop, and I feel bad that kids don't learn woodshop anymore. Is you look at a board. Grain goes one way. There are certain things we don't do when it comes to the grain of wood and how we build something. We don't want the stress to go along the grain, because that's how a karate man breaks a board that looks hard to break that really isn't. I remember my shop teacher in high school, in ninth grade, he took four one-inch pine boards. Well, he took a, uh, a one-inch, one-by-twelve-inch piece of uh, pine wood, and he cut it into four boards. And he cut two other pieces about the same height as each other and set them down like bricks on a table. And he took those four pieces of wood, so now you have four inches of solid pine. And he set them on top of the, the two that he had set up like bricks. And I knew it was going to happen, but I could tell a lot of people in my class did not know it was going to happen. And then he karate chopped that sucker, and all four of those boards split in half. And most of the kids in the class went, wow. And I went, meh. But 
those kids learned, hey, there's a reason that we orient lumber a certain way. Carpentry means knowing this between ripping and cutting and why we use different blades to do those two applications. And if you understand all that, then we can look at anything that you would build out of lumber and figure out like how that would get built. And whether we're up to the task or not, we can determine what is necessary. By knowing what's necessary, we can determine what we can do and what we maybe have to farm out or maybe we don't want to do it at all. We can get a legitimate cost on it. You know, I wish my kid would have taken more initiative and learn. I tried to teach this stuff to him. But, you know, recently, recently, like a year ago, he wanted to build a playhouse for his kids. You know, like one of these outdoor clubhouse type things. And he, he, I could tell he had no idea how much it would cost to build a simple playhouse. So when I sat down with him and I showed him, basically, here, let's just, let's just figure out what you would need. So we wrote it all down. I said, don't even worry about every piece. Because I, I knew where this was going. As soon as he saw that Bill, he wasn't going to want to do it anymore. And... uh We just went to Lowe's. I just said, start adding all that shit to your cart. He goes, well, I don't want to buy it yet. I'm like, yeah, don't. doesn't matter. Instead of getting Excel out, just start adding the two-by-fours, the you know, all the stuff to the cart. So he got about half the shit in there, and it was like a 1000 bucks. He's like, oh. But he could figure that out now. And I guarantee you anything he wants to build in the future that's in his head, he'll, he'll take that and what he learned when he was younger and do that. That's the skill of carpentry. It's beyond just the mechanics of being able to do it. How about animal husbandry? So, like, a lot of people are like, I want to learn how to keep chickens. So they get chickens, and they learn how to keep a chicken. And then they're like, well, I want to learn how to keep a rabbit. So they get a rabbit, and they learn how to keep a rabbit. And, you know, I keep tropical fish. So I'm sitting here looking at these beautiful angel fish and placos swimming around and all these plants, and they're in a tank, and there's a certain husbandry that goes into keeping them. But, honestly, it's it's the same but different, man, in the words of Tommy Chong, right, from Cheech and Chong. It's the same but different, man. Beaners, dan, 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 dan. right? You remember that song from the movie, do you? If you don't, you're not old enough. Anyway, um, what I mean by that is, so how do I keep my fish? Well, I know that the water needs to be a certain temperature. Certain things need to be in it and certain things need to not be in it. I know that they need to be fed at a certain time every day and they need to get a certain amount of food. Uh, and that, you know, they need a light cycle. So they have a light that comes on and a light that goes off and have an automated timer to do that. They need a filtration system and all those things. And I know that certain fish can go together and certain fish don't go together. In other words, right now I'm looking at one of my new planted tanks. It's just a beautifully planted 40 breeder that's starting to grow in nice. And I have one of my favorite fish of all times in there. And they're cheap, inexpensive, hardy little buggers called tiger barbs. They look like little swimming bumblebees, black and yellow striped, right? Well, they're great fish. There's nothing wrong with them. In my 55-gallon tank in front of me, I have these beautiful rainbow fish. I have this one veiled rainbow, uh, veiled, veiled angel. And I mean, this is like a $2 fish from, from PetSmart that just turned out to be like almost show quality. Gorgeous fish. Now, he's a wonderful fish too. His care is a little bit more, like he can handle a little bit less screw-ups. But basically, they live in the same type of water, the same pH and everything, but they can't go together because that little bitty tiger barb will make that angelfish miserable. So I know they have to stay apart. Now, I could keep doing a whole lesson on tropical fish today, but I don't want to do that. For those of you that insist on this, yes, I can figure out how to put them together and make it work. It involves a shitload of tiger barbs. I don't want to say any more than that. But basically, what I'm saying here is to keep tropical fish, I have to do a needs analysis of what that animal needs. Then I do a wants analysis to improve the animal's welfare and happiness. 
So it absolutely has to have. Then these things are good to have. And then there's some other things that maybe are nice to have. And then I make sure that all those things are in place. And then I bring the animals in, and it, I'm going to have, most of the time, reasonable success. Okay, that's the process of animal husbandry. So does a chicken need anything in reality that's the same as a tropical fish? Oh, a chicken actually, if you wanted to like really spend a lot of money, could probably eat the same food as a fish. But I wouldn't do it. But a chicken doesn't live underwater. A chicken has its own needs analysis and its own wants analysis and its own nice-to-have analysis. But if I do that and put that in place, I go get a chicken and stick it in there, chicken does just fine. Now, I'm going to learn things. Like if, if no one tells me and I just think angelfish are cool and put them with tiger barbs, I'm going to learn tiger barbs tear up the fins of angelfish. And I'm going to have to figure out what to do about it. When I get chickens, I'm going to find out, hey, People said I could just have chickens in a coop and let them run, and they do that, but they shit on my porch. Or they go in my garden and eat everything. And they scratch. Well, that's good, except some places I don't want scratched. I'm going to have to figure out either contain the chicken or exclude the chicken. So I'll figure that out as I go, but the basic process is the same. So when we get a pet for a child instead of Johnny feed the dog, let's talk about all the things the dog needs. The dog needs food and water. The dog needs toilet training. So we don't have to clean up the house. The dog needs to be put out and brought in. The dog needs security. He either needs a fenced yard or a leash. Just what are all the things that we need to have for the dog? Not just so Johnny learns responsibility, but so Johnny learns, like, this is a dog. And I want a dog in my life. So these are the things that a dog needs that even if nobody told me, I should actually be able to, as a thinking, living being, at the human level, figure out. All things need food and water every day. All things have a way that they go to the bathroom. That needs to be accounted for. If it's a cat, it might crap in a box I have to clean. Or it can go outside and crap in the ground and then I'll have to clean it. But if it goes outside, it might eat birds. That either is or isn't okay with me. If it's a dog, it can go outside if I have a yard, but if there's a fence and a lot of dirt, and I don't train the dog right, it can dig a hole under the fence and get away and get hit by a car. If it's a cow, it eats grass. Do I have enough grass for a cow? If I don't, what am I going to feed the cow? Am I comfortable feeding the cow feed? Or do I want to feed the cow hay, which the cow is designed to eat? How much does hay cost? Where does hay come from? Where am I going to keep the hay? You see, animal husband, it's all the same. We start with the, the animal, and then we analyze its needs, and we develop a plan for that. But how many people really think it's a lot different when they go from keeping chickens to adding rabbits? There's different, you know, rabbits generally live in a hutch. Do you know that rabbit pee will corrode metal? So we need to think about where the rabbit pee goes. If it doesn't drain off, right, it'll corrode metal. It's, like, it's almost like battery acid corrosive. But rabbit manure is immediately available as fertilizer. It's a cool manure where chicken manure is hot. We have to collect the chicken manure one way if we're going to do that in, in bedding, for instance, and compost it where the rabbit manure can be immediately applied to our garden. So there's differences, but the way we find those differences are the same. We analyze the animal and its characteristics and what it needs and what it wants and what is nice to have and what its outputs are. And then whatever we don't know, we just go get an answer for that. So in a day, assuming we have the financial and physical resources, 
any human being with a basic concept of what I just told you should be able to develop a system to house any animal. They also should have the ability to go, yeah, I probably shouldn't keep a Bengal tiger. I actually could provide all the things a Bengal tiger needs, but not really all the things that it wants, and a Bengal tiger might eat me, and I need a permit for it, and the Department of Making Me Sad might put me in jail for having it, and if it gets away, I might get sued because it eats somebody or somebody's dog, and this isn't a responsible thing to do. And I don't have enough resources to feed a Bengal tiger every day because they eat meat. They don't eat, you know, crunchy O's. But you should be able to actually figure out what a Bengal tiger would need to be happy, what a Bengal tiger habitat would be like. You should be able to do the job of a zookeeper in one day of study. I didn't say you, you can, you're going to be, have the resources to do it, but you should be able to do the, ba like, you're not going to know everything. There's a reason there's a degree in zoology or you know, animal biology, what have you. I'm not saying you, but you should be able to do the basic job from setting up the entire habitat. You might not know how to physically build it, but you should be able to figure out it needs to be at least this big, at least this tall. This is the type of water system they need. Tigers like to go in water. They like to swim. Maybe you didn't know that. doesn't matter. If you understand animal husbandry, you would have discovered that during the discovery process. Animal husbandry. All our kids should learn animal husbandry. And most families have a pet. You don't have to go get a new pet to do this. If you have a cat and the kid's been taking care of the cat, just have a conversation about all the things that gets done for the cat so the process is understood. See? Um, accounting and bookkeeping. Uh, this has to start out with a lesson is what is the difference between accounting and bookkeeping? I took accounting in high school. It was called accounting. It was three years of accounting. It was really two years of bookkeeping and a, and a, and a year of accounting. And this is high school. And I sure wish that this still existed the way that it did back when I was in school, in most schools today. I know it does some, but it doesn't everywhere, that's for sure. And the difference is, and I had a really great accounting teacher um, for accounting two and three, and three was real accounting. And uh, it, actually, my accounting one teacher was really good. His name was Umbenhauer. He was a big, bald, goofy guy. But he said at the beginning, too, you're going to learn bookkeeping here. And Mr. Birch, who I had for two, two years for Accounting 2 and Advanced Accounting 3, um, said, I'm going to teach you bookkeeping this year, and if you continue on on this path, I'll teach you actual accounting next year. And the difference was that bookkeepers basically just record everything that happens in a business. So they have a fundamental understanding of what an asset is and what capital is and what a liability is. They can enter all the information to create a balance sheet. They can do a justification to make sure everything balances on that balance sheet. They can run a ledger. Uh, they can understand the basics of cash flow, etc. But they are basically a record keeper. They keep the numbers. The numbers come in, they write the numbers down, and then they, you know, they, they tabulate the numbers and make sure the numbers make sense. They, for lack of a better term, have the ability to balance a business's checkbook, right? which would be a good skill to have for your household, to balance your household's checkbook. And to understand, you know, is your house really an asset or is it really a liability? Well, it's an asset cloaked in liability. You have an, a payable against it and you have an underlying asset value of equity in it that if you were to divest yourself of it, that's the equity you could harvest. That's the asset portion. The rest of it's a liability. 
If you understand accounting, everything I said just made perfect sense. If you don't understand accounting and everything still made perfect sense, you have the gift of what we call context clue, which is a skill I should add to this. All right? But that's bookkeeping. Accountants develop the procedures for a business to keep its records. Accountants analyze the cash flow and say, hey, three months from now you're going to have a hole in your cash flow. Accountants say, hey, look, if we call this something different, it moves over to the expense side instead of being in a neutral or a, an income side, and it reduces our tax liability. Accountants say, hey, even though the IRS says we have to depreciate this asset, it qualifies as, a depre as an accelerated depreciating asset, so we can take the majority of the depreciation in the first year instead of waiting five years to take it as even depreciation. Accountants do that. Now, you might think, well, this is boring me, let alone my kid. Make it real. Accountants determine which garden hose should we really buy for this household. Accountants determine what furniture should we buy and when should we upgrade our furniture. Accountants determine, is this college degree that I'm going to go into debt for really worth the amount of money that I'm going to go into debt for it with? Accountants determine, hey, you know what? Hmm, maybe there's a way to afford this degree for less money. Accountants determine, hey, wait a minute. Maybe there's a more affordable way to accomplish the goal that I'm trying to accomplish with this degree that doesn't even involve a degree. Hmm, maybe a degree is the only answer, but here's a way to get somebody else to pay for it. That's accountant versus bookkeeping thinking. The key is, bookkeeping is to accounting is hammering a nail is to carpentry. We have to learn how to hammer a nail, how to cut a board, so that we can design something that involves hammering a nail and cutting boards. Make sense? So when we want to learn to be a really good accountant, we have to learn the process by which we accumulate the knowledge that the accountant uses. That's bookkeeping. Now, we don't have to get too stupid with this. We don't have to get overboard with this. But if we can use a little program I like to call Microsoft Excel and at least put together a budget for our household, your kid, when your kid's 12 years old, they are not too young to go over your budget with them. This is our budget. This is how much money mom and dad make. This is how much money we put in our retirement. This is how much money our electric bill is every year. This is why I yell at you when you leave the refrigerator door open. This is why. This is how the money works. Now, we're trying to figure out how we could take a vacation next year and go somewhere really cool. Guess what? Your kid just got interested in accounting. They want to go there, too. Well, we have to keep putting this much money into our retirement so that mom and dad aren't a burden to you when you grow up. Huh, you just involve them in it. It now matters to them. Hey, I don't want you to be... What? You what? Yeah, you have some old people, Tommy. Some old people... You know, when they get old and they quit working and they retire, they don't have enough money to live on. And their kids, you know, they send them off to college and they make lots of money and then their kids have to take care of them. Well, mom and dad don't want you to ever have to do that, so we make sure we put money into our retirement savings. Oh, that's good. Well, so we can't take it from there. And these are all our expenses. And instead of just going to Italy, Texas next year, we actually want to go to Italy. No, I want to go to Italy, too. Well, Tommy, if we're going to go to Italy, we need to find an extra $1,500 between now and then. That's the make or break point to whether or not we can go to Italy. There's a lot of ways we can do that. One is maybe we wait six months longer to take our vacation. 
or we figure out how to get an extra $1,500. There's only two ways to get it, Tommy. We can either increase the income, which, by the way, we work pretty hard for as it is, or we can decrease the expense. Here's all the expenses. Where can we take it out of? See, that's accounting. The bookkeeper makes the budget and says, this is how much everything costs. The accountant says, hold on a minute. You just recorded all the data based on somebody's desires. Is this really the smart way to spend this money? So accounting and bookkeeping. From that process level. Now, this is something you probably are waiting to 12, 14 to really get deep into with a kid. But let me tell you something. Kid learns this shit when they're 14, has people working for them when they're 24. The kid that never learns this shit ends up working for a 24-year-old when he's 30. I'm just saying. This is as important. If you want to be a farmer, you need accounting and bookkeeping. You want to be a computer programmer and freelance, you need accounting and bookkeeping. You want to run, instead of be a barista at a coffee shop, you want your own Joe's Coffee Shack, you need accounting and bookkeeping. You want to become so valuable to a company by understanding their processes that you're able to, even when you don't have the authority, develop systems that save that company money or make that company more money, you need accounting and bookkeeping. One of the primary skills that enabled me to make a six-figure income by my mid-20s without a college degree and have jobs that required a degree without a degree was accounting and bookkeeping capabilities that I learned in high school. And then adding to it a process level of how does this thing that I understand over here apply to this thing over here that I'm now in the middle of? How do I make this work? So that when I became a department head and somebody said, hey, Jack, we need you to take 30 grand out of your department in the next quarter. I was able to go, you know what? No. Wait, 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 wait a minute. We didn't ask. We were talking. No, I'm, I'm not going to take 15 grand out of my, or 20 grand, I'm sorry, 30 grand out of my department in the next quarter. 10,000 a month. I'm not going to do that. Well, well, what do you mean you're not going to do it? Well, what I've done is I've figured out how to generate an additional $15,000 of revenue. So I'm going to take 15000 out of my department, and I'm going to do five of it with an interdepartmental billing because we've been providing this service to this other department over here for free. If you're going to start making me lean out my processes, I'm going to have to start charging for everything that I do. So I'm going to take 10000 out of salaries, 5000 I'm going to reclaim here, and here's $15,000 of revenue that we didn't have planned that now offset the other 15000 That's what you're getting from me. Now, if you want to force me to do it another way, that's fine. But I'm not going to do it unless you make me. This is my proposal. Well, you know what you get then? You get to run more departments. Accounting and bookkeeping. Kind of important. Should be teaching this as a life skill. Next up, this is like, if I could give you one thing to teach your kid that will change their life, that is free. The ability to do mental simulation of an event. What does that mean? That means I'm going to go for a job interview today, and instead of role-playing with my daddy inside my head, I'm going to come up with every single thing that person might possibly ask me, and my response, and their response to my response is I'm going to keep playing this game in my head all the way up until I walk in that door. So that the point that I get there, and that I am asked something that isn't even one of those things that I simulated in my head, I'm still going to have an immediate answer for it. And every time I go on an interview... I'm going to start getting to the point where this is like a game, and I'm going to start interviewing for jobs I don't even want just for the experience so I can become badass 
at negotiating as an applicant in an interview so that when I go to the job interview where I really want the job, I can own the damn thing. That's mental simulation. Mental simulation is, you know what, I screwed up. And this thing I'm supposed to have done for my teacher is not finished. Now, you might be thinking, Johnny should have done it. You know what? I'm more concerned that Johnny is able to get the grade he needs from the, the, the state-approved school to get done with it and work that system. So if Johnny figures out through mental simulation how to make a deal with that teacher so that he can turn it in late and still gets credit for it, I'm good with that. I'm actually better with that than doing it on time just because he was told to. I'm actually more impressed with that. Can't do it all the time, but when you need to, you need the ability to do that because you are going to miss deadlines with your boss. Better you learn how to do it when you're 14 than when you're 40, working for a 24-year-old who learned accounting when he was 14 because you didn't want to. You see how that works? Really simple. Mental simulation. This is for your kid's benefit in all walks of life. Your kid, let's say you got a little boy. He's going to grow up into a young man. He's going to be 16. He's going to have this girl with you know ponytail or something he really thinks is cute. He's going to want to ask her out on a date. And he's not going to really have the confidence to do it. But if he can run that mental simulation and can think of everything that she says and realizes even, no, I don't like you, is it going to make him bleed? He's going to go up and be like, hey, you want to go out? No? Okay, bye. Maybe that's his first try at it. But eventually he'll get really good at it. Right? He'll get, I mean, we used to tell a joke that when you were in high school, like when you were a freshman, like at the first school dance, you go up and, um, uh, and you're like playing, you know, like, rubbing your back of your head would you mm, uh, like to care to dance with me uh, no okay and you just ran away and like by the time you were a senior like hey do you want to dance no what do you mean no you're lucky somebody asked you in the first place right I mean that's not nice but the confidence the confidence I, I was going over with my son how to talk to his boss about a raise and he said I, I need you like my agent I'm like, but no, you need to learn to do this yourself because part of what they're concerned with isn't just your ability to negotiate with them, but how that ability translates in your ability to manage people. They need to believe you're the guy that can walk up to somebody and go, you know what, pack your shit, Skippy, it's not working out. Get out of here, clean your locker, bye. They need to know you can do that. And if you can't do that with them, and they like you and you like them, how are you going to do that with an employee? So mental simulation does that. That you know, I learned a lot of this from the military because a lot of what the military teaches is based on mental simulation. A lot of it's physical simulation, you know, shooting a target instead of a man, but we shoot a target that looks like a man. But a lot of it's exercises in the mind. And we exercise the mind to the point where when we actually end up in the situation, the execution is immediate. And so that is just, this is why it's such a great skill to teach kids. It's easy. It's imagination. Kids like imagination. It's fun. Play games. What would you do if? Okay, well, if that didn't work, then what would you do next? Well, if that didn't work, what would you do next? Well, what if when they said this, you would do that? Now, here's what you're doing. You're training this person to negotiate with you, and they're going to use it against you. Your kid's going to come to you someday when they're 16, and they want something, and they're going to work your ass over, and you're going to go finally like... Fine, you can have it. You know what? Congratulations. You just, not your kid, you just got an A-plus in teaching this. They're going to become deadly at it. And again, you want them to be that way. You want them to be sitting there when they're 20 going, gee, it's not fair to everybody else in the world that I can do these things, that I can think this way. You want that 
young person, boy or girl, to grow into a young man or woman who when they walk into an interview for a job or to get into a college or whatever it is, an internal company interview to earn that next position up, to just walk in there like, I don't understand why you haven't already given me the job. I don't understand why you haven't already said yes to me about this date. I don't understand why this opportunity is being kept from me. Because it would be so much better for you if you gave me this opportunity. Because if I succeed at this opportunity, you win. Now, you won't, you maybe don't want them so confident they're speaking that way, unless it's called for. Because sometimes it is. Sometimes that's how you win. But you want that to be the internal dialogue. That comes from mental simulation. See, it, it, down to hitting a baseball. There's no substitute for going in the batting cage and having those tires throw that ball to you. But a person that develops mental simulation, they can see that ball. Coming every way that ball could ever come in their head. They're thinking about it. If that's, if that's their thing, they are, you know, a baseball player. They want to someday play maybe in the majors, but at least they want to play at the collegiate level. If that's that important to them, then they simulate that in their head. And when that ball that never came that way before shows up that way, it did come that way before. We used to say in, in, in martial arts, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. If we do something the right way, over and over, even very slowly, we develop the muscle memory to where it can be executed in instance, you know, immediately, in a nanosecond, when it's necessary. That's what mental, mental simulations do. But it doesn't just do it for physical actions. It does it for verbal interactions. It does it for thought process. And it does it for knowing when to shut up. So work on that. How about logical analysis of a claim? When your kid comes home and says, the teacher said, fill in the bullshit here, right? The teacher says, like my grandson, the teacher says that our car is killing the planet and making it get hotter. Well, teacher said that, hey? Well, let's start out with, how does your teacher get to school every day? Well, in a car. Okay, maybe she shouldn't be telling you you shouldn't ride in a car then. But let's examine this, Right? The teacher said, we're going to be out of oil in 10 years or whatever it is. Okay. Well, my teacher said that too, but let's, let's go examine. Let's go find out what known oil reserves are and how much of it there is. Let's find out. Let's not say this claim is bullshit. Let's find out if this claim is true. Is there evidence backing this claim? Are there two sides to the story? And if you really want to teach somebody to logically analyze a claim, what you actually have to teach them is the skill of debate. And... The skill of debate married to the previous skill of mental simulation because they need to be able to debate this with themselves. When you look at like a debating club or a debate team at a school level, what will happen is you'll get certain things assigned to you, a subject. And what then will happen is you might show up and have to debate somebody, but you don't know what side of the debate you have to debate until it's time to debate. So, for instance, if you were examining the gun issue, the right to own a gun, is this an individual right or a right reserved to militias? Let's say that was what you're going to debate. Now, I know that 99.9999999, I can't keep saying it, will run out of time of this audience. I know where you stand. It is an individually constitutionally protected right, and even the Supreme Court in Heller versus D.C. says so. It would be a great debate point. But if you're a good debater, 
you're going to be able to make the case of the other side even when you don't agree with it. And only when you can do that, only when you can do that, can you logically analyze an issue to the point where you say, I know why I believe what I believe now. I actually can make your argument and I can make my argument. And in being able to make both arguments, maybe in moments with a mental simulation, I now have a firm grasp and understanding of this claim. And what happens is the bullshit detector of the individual that can do this becomes incredibly finely tuned because of our old friend, pattern recognition. So once we learn to do this, we start identifying patterns. And when we hear a claim, the very way in which the claim is phrased will often be a pattern. And that pattern will be indicative of a claim that is generally true, generally false, or generally a mixture plus an agenda, which is what the majority will be. But you'll be able to immediately start like, okay, that's probably bullshit. Or, uh, I bet part of that is bullshit. And then you'll analyze it and go, well, you know what, I was wrong this time. Actually, that claim was completely true. As outrageous as it seemed. Or, ha, I knew that was bullshit. But now, the, the, the beauty of this is, when your kid gets really good at negotiations, but they explain to them why they can't have the raise at 90 days of their new job that they were told they can have, they know that they're being bullshitted. And they know at that point they either push harder, shut up and deal with it, or go get a different job because this person lied to them. Now, if they're smart and they're good at accounting and bookkeeping, and they've created a metric for themselves that they've measured themselves by that they take to that review, it's going to be very hard to bullshit them, isn't it? Like I said, do you want to be the 40-year-old working for the 24-year-old, or do you want to be the 24-year-old with the 40-year-old working for you? It's a valid question because it's a valid thing, and it does happen. And it does happen, and it is the people that think this way that end up in charge in their 20s. And it is the people that refuse to that end up working for 20-year-olds in their 40s. And there are the people that end up can't find a job in their 60s, but they still need one. I'm not putting anybody down. I'm just telling you, this is the thought process that leads there. So logical analysis of a claim. Presentation and teaching skills. Like I said, I combine this one. Because if you can present, you can teach. And if you think you can teach and you can't present, you can't teach. And what I mean by this is that you should be able to take anything you know how to do, formulate it into some sort of presentation, whether that be a PowerPoint presentation, a physical prop presentation, a speaking presentation, whatever it is, they should be able to teach someone how to do it. How do you teach a kid to do this? Take something they love to do and get them to teach you how to do it. Ask questions along the way. Pretend you're stupid and you don't know how to do it. Make them teach you. Make them teach. Don't just teach them. Make them teach you. Get them to learn something you don't know how to do and get them to come teach it to you. When they really want something, let's say your kid is like me when I was a kid. He's a freak. He likes snakes. Snakes are the coolest thing in the world. Doesn't care if he gets bit. Knows the difference between venomous and non-venomous. When you tell him it's poisonous, he tells you to shut up, Dad. There are no poisonous snakes. You don't really like the idea of a snake in your house. You don't really like it. But he's worn you down. And you want your kid to be happy. And you realize it is just an animal without legs. There's big ones and little ones, and maybe some are not good ones and some are. But then what I would do is I would go to... Susan, who wants a snake, because girls like snakes too, trust me, plenty of them do. 
And I would say, Susie, you want a snake? Yeah. Daddy has decided you can have a snake. Yay! Hold on. Mom's like, what? No, hold on. Susie, I think it's very important that you develop the ability to present and to teach. So I'm going to make you a deal. You're going to develop a presentation. It's going to be one hour long. You're going to teach Daddy all about snakes. You're going to present to me the five best snakes for a young person to keep as their first snake. You're going to explain to me all their husbandry requirements. You're going to explain to me their enclosure requirements, what the cost of all the stuff is. You're going to put this together in a really great presentation, and Mom, whether you want to or not, and Dad are going to sit down, and we're going to watch this presentation. We'll hook it up to the Apple TV. You can run it off my iMac. You're going to do it in, in uh, Keynote or PowerPoint if you use a computer. And you're going to explain to us, and you're going to sell us on the five best, and you're going to give us your number one choice out of those five best species. You're going to tell us how much it's going to cost us. You're going to tell us how long it's going to take you to take care of it. You're going to tell us how much the animal's going to cost, how much everything. You're going to do this like you're trying to win a deal for a company you work for. And your commission, if you do a really good job, And you prove to me that this can be done safely and economically is I will let you have a snake. And if you don't, you don't get the deal. I'm not going to sign the contract. In fact, you need to put together a contract as part of your deal. And you need to ask me to sign it when your presentation's done. You might think I've gone overboard, that that's too much. <laughs> Holy freaking crap. If you have a kid motivated to something that you're even open to letting them do, that they really want, that they've wanted their whole life, and you lay that out in front of them, you know what you do when they do a crappy job? You go, you know what? You're going to get something that doesn't usually happen in the real world. A second chance. This was a terrible presentation. You did not know your material. You have not convinced me. But I did notice that you were motivated. So... You have two weeks to come back to me with this presentation and do it right. And maybe you'll win me over then. Please don't do this with anything you're not open to. If you will never, ever, never infinity have a snake, pick something else, even if your kid likes snakes. But again, don't be a big baby. Snakes aren't going to hurt you. I should put how to handle a non-venomous snake and not be a baby as to one of my life skills. All right. But yeah, do that. Now, you know what that kid can, that kid is never going to be as motivated to do that project as they are in that moment. You've said no for five years. They've been asking for this for five years. They will learn more putting that presentation together than they will learn in four years of college about how to sell an idea. That person can go into a company, understand what that company does, put together a presentation on the fly, and go sell that company. And if I can go in and interview with you, and I can say, I've been researching your company, I have a few questions for you. Wait, let me tell you how I would sell your company to somebody I meet on the street. And I can give a two-minute presentation on your company on the fly the day that I meet you that's better than what your marketing people and your salespeople are doing right now that you're paying them high salaries to do. You're hiring me. And if you're not, your competitor will. And that's why I had 40-year-olds working for me when I was 24. That's why. Because of that attitude. And you have the opportunity to teach this to your kid. The next thing you have is troubleshooting. Troubleshooting is the most valuable skill in my life. Troubleshooting goes back to my days as a mechanic in the Army, and I realized when I, when I went to school 
in the Army to be a mechanic. The troubleshooting was my differentiating factor. That I already had it. I just never really had it formalized into the level like, here is a manual. This is how you troubleshoot the fact that this vehicle won't start. I just knew what to do. I had like an intuition for it. Like, well, there's only so many things that make a vehicle start. We have an ignition. We have a battery. We have a starting motor. We have a solenoid. Right? Is it turning over? Is it not turning over? It's not doing anything. Well, start at the battery. Right? But there's actually a process For everything that can go wrong for an army vehicle, there's a process. There's a, a field manual. It's a dash 20. So it'll be you know, like uh, 923-20-209-20 is a technical manual that I've just pulled out of a brain cell from forever ago. I believe that's for a deuce and a half, but I could be wrong. Um, and so then in that manual, anything that can go wrong with that, there's a description And it's step one, step two, step three, step four. It's a methodical process. Everything that can go wrong in the world has a troubleshooting process. My computer won't start. I cannot connect to my network. My fish in my tank died. This person is in the middle of a cardiac arrest. A doctor does a troubleshooting process, whether they are a family practice doctor figuring out why you don't quite feel well or somebody saving your life in the moment on a table. It's all troubleshooting. Troubleshooting is this thing supposed to work this way, and it's not. Why? Where's the, where's the starting point? And let's take the starting point through to the end point and find where the misconnect is. Then we put it back together, and it works. If I have to explain to you why that is an important life skill, I don't know how you're still listening to today's episode. So I want to get finished, so I'm going to say that's troubleshooting in a nutshell, and you should work that into the skill sets you teach your kid. When something's not working, instead of fixing it for them, or instead of saying, hey, go fix it, say, hey, let's, let's look at this thing. Use it as an opportunity. Let's look at this thing. How does it work? And if they're getting really frustrated, say, look, I could tell you exactly what's wrong with it, but I want you to be able to fix it, Tom. I want you to be able to fix it, Susie. And I don't want you to be able to fix it right now. I want you to be able to fix it when it's a little bit more complicated and you've left home. You're in a college dorm somewhere, or you're in your own house, or your own apartment, and you need to get it fixed. Or you're at the office, and you're working for somebody, and by fixing it, you look more valuable. I want you to know how to do Don't you want to know how to figure things out? Well, yeah, okay, so let's, even though some of this you will already know, let's go through the process. How does this thing work? What's the starting point? What's the end point? Let's trace it through. And when we find what's wrong, and how do we fix it, and how do we do so safely? If it's electric... Maybe we should unplug it. It's an electric system in a car. might be a good idea to know if we disconnect the negative terminal off the battery that all the power stops. We might need to hook it back up for certain things to be checked, but yeah, this is what happens when you take a wrench and touch the positive terminal of a battery in the frame of the car. We arc weld. We don't want to do that. It hurts. So you might have to guide them so they're safety and understanding. A, but the bigger thing is then, like, these are the things we do to be safe in troubleshooting this thing. But this is the principle by which we determine there's a danger. So when you're troubleshooting something that's totally different than this, this is what you look out for. This is how you identify a danger so you don't kill yourself or hurt somebody else. I have a friend, an internet friend type of relationship who was on an email list that's not even active anymore. But this was a really active email list. And... He set up a shop in his house. This is a list based on guns, and he was doing some gunsmithing stuff and all. He was using a grinder improperly. 
And because of that, the grinder threw a piece of metal through his throat and cut his jugular vein along with his trachea. And he bled out and died on the floor before his wife found him. Might have been good if he had learned this thought process, because even though that wasn't directly troubleshooting, it would have identified the danger. Last one, map and navigation skills. This is one we're losing because everybody has a GPS. And I hate to sound like your, your, your math teacher said you won't always have a calculator, but you may not always have a GPS because GPSs fail. You could have your phone and your calculator will work. You could probably figure out a way to charge your phone. You probably do have access to a calculator just about everywhere you go. You should still know basic math. But I have been places where my phone works, but the GPS part didn't. So you might not have one. But this is about being able to communicate anyway. For instance, I can't stand a person who draws a map where north is not up. Most people have no directional awareness anymore. Like if you say, if they're in their house and you say, point north, they, they don't know what way north is. You should know what way north is when you're sitting in your house. So if you drew a map for somebody on how to get to your house, that direction should be at the top of the map. And you should, I'm not talking about being a cartographer. I'm talking about main roads and how to draw a map. And be able to give directions where you tell somebody, when you get there, go east. Because if I'm telling you, if you say, well, I'm going to be on this particular road. Well, I need to know if you're going north or south on this road so that when you hit this other road, I'm going to tell you to make a left or a right. But I don't need to know that. If I got my directions down, I don't care where you're coming from. I don't give a shit. When you get to, you know, Nine Mile Bridge Road, go west to find my house. Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to be coming south. I don't care. West is the same direction on that road, no matter what way you're coming from, as long as I know the road you're using to get there. Now, if you get to the east of me, that's true. If you end up to the west, so I do need to know that. You should be able to print a map out off of Google Maps and then use it. You should be able to get an atlas and find directions. Your kids need to be able to do this stuff. I know we've made big leaps in technology here. Like I said, I don't want to be the math teacher that says you won't always have a calculator. But I'll tell you what, you, do use, you might not use that advanced calculus. Probably won't ever use it. It was a lie. But I bet you use math every day. I bet you use basic math. I bet you use basic algebra. You know when you're trying to add two numbers together and you round one up and take the difference, put it to the other one and bring it back over? If you understood what I just said? Basically you, 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 you round to tens or hundreds and, and, and use the difference and then bring it back? That's algebra. That's algebra. That is, that is the algebra we should be teaching kids to do in their head. Well, map skills are like that. You should have basic map skills because maybe I just need to tell you how to do something right now. Because I'll tell you what else I've learned. You're going to have to deal with people that can't work an iPhone map application. I have family who will, like, we're meeting somewhere, even a place they might have been before. They'll call on the way. Well, we're here. How do we get to... I gave you the address, and you just end up like, you know what, where are you at? Yeah, make a right. Yeah, where you see that 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 store, yeah, make a left, and it's it's just down a little bit. Yeah, I'll see you when you get here. Like, it's just not worth it. 
Now, even text, I've had some send your location function, and they still can't work it. So you need to know how to do this stuff because other people won't be able to. But map and navigation is a skill that everybody should have. And again, being able to draw a basic map, because it's more of how it makes you think. By being able to draw that basic map out, it translates because all of these interconnect. See, if I can draw a map, I can troubleshoot because troubleshooting is a map. All right? If I know how to do troubleshooting, then I can logically analyze a process. And if I can logically analyze a process, I can logically analyze a claim. And if I can logically analyze a process and a claim, then I can make a presentation about that so that I can teach you. Which, if I can do all that, I'm going to do a lot of it using mental simulations. Which, if I can do all that, then accounting and bookkeeping are just the numbers that go along with everything. Cooking is just a process. And developing a, a recipe is just the reverse of troubleshooting. And if I can do all that shit and understand food, I can take care of an animal. If I can do all of that and I need an animal taken care of, I might have to build something for that animal. Well, carpentry does that. And then once that animal grows up, maybe I want to eat it. If I know how to do meat cutting, I can take it apart and feed myself. Literally every one of these skills meshes into the other skills all the way through. I did not plan it that way. That conclusion was not one I had planned. But just, I want to end with this. Understanding procedures makes you competent. You understand how to do things, you are competent. Understanding theory makes you fearless and valuable. If you want to quote me, there's the quote of the week for you. Understanding procedures makes you competent Understanding theory makes you fearless and valuable. And the reason you're fearless isn't because it's safe to do everything. You know what it's safe to do, and you know what it's not safe to do. And you know how to mitigate your risks when you have to take one. Anyway, with that, we've wrapped up another episode. Hope you enjoyed this show. If you did, consider supporting us. One of the ways you can do that is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. And guys, gals, I have a product of the day for you today. It is made by a company called Lakanto, L-A-K-O-N-T-O. Lakanto, it is a monk fruit-based sweetener. It's actually monk fruit and erythritol mixed together. Why? Because monk fruit has a little bit of a aftertaste type thing, fruity. Shocking, I know. And erythritol has one. It's kind of cooling, mint-like, like wintergreen. Put the two together, they cancel each other out, and you just get something that tastes like sugar with zero calories. Yep, and, it, and a teaspoon is a teaspoon. measures the same. And you can get a brown sugar version and a classic version. I have used regular erythritol as a sweetener this way, and it works good. This is just better. I have a whole write-up on it, but this stuff is awesome. And, guys, if you are keto, it's a game-changer. If you're paleo-keto, it's a game-changer. It's a sweetener that won't jack with your blood sugar. Even if you're never going to do this, though, Even if you're like, screw Jack, I'm going to eat my bread, I'm going to eat my rice, whatever. So cut the sugar back. So just cut the sugar. Those of you that are even like, I don't even mind having some sugar in my baked goods. Mix it half and half. Cut the sugar to your kids. Risk, reduce your risk of diabetes. There's no, no one in America that can't deal with a little bit of their sugar being cut back. And when you try this stuff, you'll be like, there's no reason not to use this. Use this. this is not... Any kind of like a sucrose or something, a sulacrose or something, or aspartame that has like health risks. Um, 
this is not a bullshit sugar substitute either. Like uh, two sugar substitutes that absolutely will spike your blood sugar are malditol and xylitol. And I have a link in the write-up today of a of a experiment where this couple they went and they tried all these different sweeteners one each day first thing in the morning on an empty stomach and they measured their blood sugar. And the malditol, which is in things like Atkins bars that are supposedly you know zero carb, bullshit. It jacks your blood sugar up almost as bad as regular sugar. Xylitol, uh, not as bad, but toxic to your dogs. It can kill your dog. I'm not even opposed to xylitol, but very very small amounts in certain applications. I don't like to bring you know chocolates toxic to my dogs too, but I try to minimize things that are toxic to my animals. But erythritol. It ain't going to kill your dogs, and it tastes like sugar, and it's not going to jack up your, your, your gut bacteria like Sulucrose Cat. Now, I wanted to give you two things you can do with this that are awesome if you want to stay low-carb and if you want to love your life. I want to give you, I've got both of the recipes in the write-up today. Jack's Chocolate Keto Coffee. Now, I want to explain something. These sweeteners and all the extra stuff that goes along with like these keto treats... You don't eat that shit every day. Those are desserts used in moderation, even on keto. But here's how I make a coffee. I usually do this for myself on Sunday mornings. One tablespoon, right? I'm sorry, one teaspoon of pure cocoa powder. That's 100% no sugar cocoa powder. There's like 15 calories in a tablespoon. So it's a third of that, five calories. And it's less than one carb. Uh, one teaspoon of the Lakanto golden sugar. One tablespoon of MCT oil. That's totally optional, but if I'm doing MCT that day, you go ahead and put it in there. Um, one quarter teaspoon of cinnamon, real cinnamon, Celion cinnamon. One to two drops of stevia. Why the stevia and the Lakanto? Again, multiple sweeteners. We cancel out any of that strange taste. Uh, two cranks of pink salt. One tablespoon of heavy organic cream. Two tablespoons of coconut cream. And coffee. Put all that in a blender. Put the coffee in first. Or your cinnamon and cocoa powder will stick to the bottom of the blender and not blend well for you. Blend that up in a blender, pour that in a cup, and my God, is it good. It is so amazing. It will blow you away. And it, the, what I just gave you, uh, it ends up being about two carbs. And we can make it less if you want to. Next, as many of you know, I've always been big on cooking. And I've come up with some really amazing rubs. And I thought, why not give you, since we talked about a chocolate coffee... A chocolate coffee rub for ribs. This will blow you away. If you don't want to use Lakanto, if you don't care about sugar, you just use all brown sugar here. If you want to get rid of the brown sugar and be completely zero carb, then don't use the one-third of the mixture of brown sugar. But what I found was when I made this rub with brown sugar, it was amazing. But... You know, three tablespoons of brown sugar in a rub, even just a rub, it's quite a bit of extra sugar. When I made it with three tablespoons of Lakanto, it was good, but the brown sugar and the real sugar has a melting component to how it makes a glaze on a meat that the Lakanto does, you know, erythritol does, but it's just not the same. So what I ended up settling on was take my recipe, which had three tablespoons of brown sugar, and cut it to one and use two tablespoons of the Lakanto Golden. And here's how you make it. And this is not a joke. Two tablespoons ground coffee. Two tablespoons of cocoa powder. Again, this is not hot chocolate mix. This is 100% pure cacao. Zero sugar. 
Okay, so two tablespoons of coffee and cocoa, two tablespoons Lakanto Golden, one tablespoon brown sugar, two tablespoons of chili powder, two tablespoons of salt, kosher is best for this one, one tablespoon of ground black pepper, one quarter teaspoon of red pepper flake, one teaspoon of cumin. You mix that together and you will think God cooked your ribs. It is amazing. It's even good on steaks, quick seared, because, God, you get such a just amazing sear with that. It loves chicken. This stuff is like it's in love with chicken. I made it for ribs. It's great on ribs. But you put this on skin on chicken, and you do like a low and slow grill, like a smoke. Oh, good God. It's amazing. And it can be super low carb or no carb, thanks to Lakanto. Uh, I really do believe, no matter who you are, Even if you think all this keto stuff is not worth worrying about, cutting sugar is a good thing. I don't think anybody that has any basic understanding of diet wouldn't say cutting sugar is a good thing. Lakanto will let you cut it without even knowing it. I'll bet you, you could take your kids' cookies, you're going to make them for Christmas this year. And you could replace it straight up with Lakanto, and they probably wouldn't know. But I'll tell you this, if you cut it by half, used half sugar and half Lakanto, I guarantee you they won't know. They will never know, and you cut the sugar in half. That's good for everybody. Check this stuff out, and remember, you can always help support the show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day today. song of the day today is by Queensryche, and it's called Empire. This was their breakout album. And when I was, like, this was, like, right when I got out of high school, this album came out in 1990. And... There was a song on this album called Silent Lucidity. And that was really the song that made Queensryche. And it sounds different than any other song on the album. And the reason it made them so huge is because everybody's like, Hey man, did you hear that song that sounds exactly like Pink Floyd did it, but it's by this Queensryche band? And everybody's like, No, I didn't hear that bullshit. No one sounds like Floyd. And everybody listened to it. like, Oh my God, that has to be Pink Floyd. No, it's not. Look at the tape. Like, that's what made this album huge. But the whole damn album was good. This song is so much deeper than it sounds like it is when you first hear the intro. It's classic. It's Even though this came out in 1990, this is 80s rock, okay? Uh, this is, this is I mean, this is hairband 80s rock. And it's got this big guitar opening and all, and it just sounds like, you know, music for the sake of music. What this song is really about is how the U.S. is turning into an empire, and that empire is beginning to crumble. And the similarities between that empire and, and like the empire built by drug gangs. It has a part in it that's spoken, and it's kind of supported, maybe supposed to be Ronald Reagan, who had recently passed away, talking about how much the federal government spends on law enforcement versus things like the space program. And the problem here is that, well, they don't spend enough money on law enforcement. Yeah. Worried about them being an empire. See, some, this is, to some levels, this song is the perfect example of absolutely identifying the problem, but not so much the solution. But understand where they were coming from. Where they were coming from is the government spends all this money on stuff that maybe we don't need. But yet people are afraid to walk down the streets in their neighborhood because the gangs are controlling it. See, and the way I would look at it is we have all this money that being spent by law enforcement to harass people because, I don't know, they didn't get a permit before they planted a tree, and yet we still have drug lords running around controlling entire neighborhoods. But, you know, I checked into it, and the numbers have gone way up, and the problem hasn't gone away. But Empire. 
You know, the truth is, every empire has fallen. And every nation that has sought empire and become one, therefore has fallen. That's a path this country is on. The desire, and, and see, people look at it and say, well, the United States is different. We're not occupying all these other countries. Okay, let me just say that we're not. I can make the argument that those people are wrong too, folks. Don't worry. But I know what they mean when they say that. I know what they mean when they say that. But it doesn't matter if we control another nation by putting troops on the ground in their streets or through what we call soft power, which is the ability to use economic might and the potential threat of military might to gain compliance. The empire is about controlling how other nations live versus seeing to your own needs. In other words, the best way to see to my needs is by controlling everybody else. That's one. That's, that's the mentality of empire. Where the mentality of our founding was the best way to see to our needs is to actually see to our needs. Which would actually be the best form of a word that's been bastardized and become a bad word, nationalism. Not nationalism as in national exceptionalism. Nationalism as in, okay, we control this area. Why don't we fix our shit? Instead of telling everybody else how to live, why don't we put the smoke alarms in and put out the fire in our bedroom before we tell our neighbor they should have smoke alarms? That's not what empires do. Empires seek to control others. That's what this song's about. And the key is, when you seek to control others, you fail to control yourself. So in different instances and in different ways, empires within the empire rise up. Whether they're drug empires, oligarchies, doesn't really matter. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.